entering the Freedom Hut. Trump derangement syndrome is all too real. The Democrats have lost their minds, not just about the current president and Russia collusion and the fight between Congress and the executive branch, but also on climate change and a whole host of other issues. We're going to try to help them with a little therapy through truth today on The Buck Sexton Show. That and much more coming up. This This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small step. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here. I, I, I wanted to start with something maybe a little... A little different today. Uh, I want to start with a premise. Uh, We often discuss here on the show the ways in which I think the the liberals, uh, the progressives, the left in this country are detached from reality, that they have lost it in some way, that there is a, a mass hysteria. Well, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles Mackey which was uh, published back in 1841, has a quote that I wanted to start off the show with today because I think as you hear it, you'll think, huh, so it is possible for a large portion of a country's population to effectively lose it on an issue. Here's what he wrote. This is the uh, 19th century Scotsman. In the reading of the history of nations, we find that, like individuals, they have their whims and their peculiarities, their seasons of excitement and recklessness, when they care not what they do. We find that whole communities suddenly fix their minds upon upon one object and go mad in its pursuit, that millions of people become simultaneously impressed with one delusion and run after it, till their attention is caught by some new folly more captivating than the first. Sober nations have all at once become desperate gamblers and risked almost their existence upon the turn of a piece of paper. Men, it has been well said, think in herds. It will be seen that they go mad in herds while they only recover their senses slowly and one by one. Yep. Doesn't that sound like the modern Democratic Party to you? They've gone mad in a herd, and we can only bring them back one by one. But they are in the grips of a a total delusion, a delusion that Donald Trump worked with the Russians, even though the evidence now shows them they have been presented with over 400 pages of evidence and two-plus years of feverish speculation and unbounded analytic craziness from all the major newspapers and networks and with a few left out of that about how this was just going to be a a day of destruction for Trump when the truth was finally found. Now the truth is out and guess what? They refuse to accept it as the truth. But I do start to think that liberalism has morphed because of all the different echo chambers that it can rely on, because of the dominance that it has in much of American culture and certainly the American media landscape is 90% liberal. 
colleges are liberal. Increasingly, the federal government is full of liberals. And with all of this happening, it seems clear to me that there is a real condition here, a kind of psychological medical condition known as liberalism. That for a lot of people, it goes from being an organizing uh, an organizing philosophy for different ideas and policy theories to something a bit more clinical. And if you think that that's an, that's an exaggeration, I just bring you that there is now for climate change, which is another area of, of abject hysteria for liberals, I mean, they think that it's okay. They they advocate for terrifying 10-year-olds into thinking the world will end in 10 years, and they don't see a problem with this. And in fact, once they have successfully brainwashed those 10-year-olds, they will deploy them. They will deploy them to harangue you and me, to browbeat us into submission. And if you have any problem with this, if you say, I don't think the world's really going to end in 10 years, this is crazy, they say, oh, You're one of those Trumpsters, aren't you? Just always running around with your MAGA hat on supporting Trump. No, I'm just not somebody that has lost it. And that's the way you have to speak about this now. Let me share with you a piece published today in CNN, of all places. And it's about climate change anxiety. How this is now becoming a crippling fear For otherwise functioning adults, they have been so propagandized. They have been so brainwashed by the left-wing Democrat media industrial complex that they are terrified. They are literally losing sleep and crying because the world is going to end because of climate change. Kind of like the elderly people that couldn't sleep at night because they were worried they would have their last day on Earth before... The Mueller report came out. These are not normal thoughts. This is not, these are not the mental processes of people that are well-adjusted. Something has gone wrong here. The synapses are misfiring. Here's this piece about climate change anxiety. You could also call it hysteria. From CNN. Quote, a student in Wendy Peterson Boring's climate change class said she woke up at 2 a.m. and then cried for two solid hours about the warming ocean. This is a computer science major, Boring said. Boring, an associate professor of history, religious studies, women and gender studies, of course, at Willamette University in Oregon, has been teaching about climate change for a little over a decade. In that short time, she has watched her students fear, grief, stress, and anxiety grow. Back in 2007, it was the mouse in the room. Then it became the elephant in the room. By 2016, those concerns and fears began to flood over. I, I'm, I'm just telling you what's being reported by liberals about their state of mind. They've got a problem. They've got a problem when it comes to Trump. They've got a problem when it comes to climate change. They are in the grips of what Mackey described in the 19th century as a mass delusion. And people don't like to admit this. They don't, they don't want to unravel this in their own brains because no one wants to think that they could fall for some silly conspiracy theory and have it overtake their, their thoughts and their sense of well-being and change their relationships with people. I see this happening all the time. 
I hear people say that, you know, oh, I came across another person who says, you know, he or she won't date a Trump supporter. What kind of nonsense is that? What kind of narrow-minded political bigotry has the left embraced? Well, it's now pervasive. It's so pervasive that the American Psychological Association, I'm sure that's an interesting bunch to go on a junket with to Vegas, they created a 69-page climate change guide to help mental health providers. That's right. Now psychologists are having to create documents to deal with the apparently very real psychological condition of climate change hysteria. When are liberals going to tone it down and back off a little bit? How much is too much? I think it's only going to get worse. I wish I could tell you that I had a belief that they would finally recognize how counterproductive this is, how insane all of this is. But no, that is that is not the case. You have this, uh, this species die-off news cycle from earlier in the week about how you know all a million species are at risk of of dying a million species because oh, because of us because of human beings and now we're supposed to dramatically change this isn't just stuff that is theoretical we're going to change our lifestyle change our economies change our political systems to deal with the threat of species die off because of climate change you know, it's either Trump is going to ruin the world, cause a nuclear war, destroy America, or climate change is going to end the world. Can't can we just figure out like a, a better way to do drug pricing and, you know, maybe make some more efficient choices in the school system? I mean, can, can we have normal political conversations at some point or is it always, oh, my gosh, we're all going to die because Republicans or usually it's because Trump. I'm not the one putting out. As a, as a medical association, guidance for how to deal with people that aren't getting their way politically. This, this is the, the libs are doing this now. I'm just here to provide you with, with some refuge of sanity. And I hope you at least can look forward to that. You can come here. This is where, this is where we approach things as they are. This is where, where we approach reality and understand it as such. You had back in 1980... And this was fascinating. This is from a guy uh, who's a, an environmentalist skeptic out of Denmark, pulled this together. And he had all this great stuff today uh, online. And this is from the, uh, the Carter administration, Jimmy Carter's administration, where we were told that, uh, here, let me, let me read you. This is from the government report, the U.S. government projections called the Global 2000 Study. This is from 1980. And I'm just going to read you some of what... This is the United States government under Jimmy Carter, the President of the United States. This was put forward. The media latched onto this in 1980, almost the year that I was born. Here's what it says. If present trends continue, the world in 2000 will be more crowded, more polluted, less stable ecologically, and more vulnerable to disruption than the world we live in now. Serious stresses involving population, resources, and environment are clearly visible. Despite greater material output, the world's people will be poorer than they are today. False, dramatically, demonstrably, clearly false. But let me go back to this. Global 2000 report from the U.S. government, all the smart scientists working for Jimmy Carter, this is what they thought. Quote, 
For hundreds of millions of the desperately poor, the outlook for food and, and other necessities of life will be no better. For many, it will be worse. Life for most people on earth will be more precarious in the year 2000 than it is now, unless the nations of the world act decisively to alter current trends. Extinctions of plant and animal species will increase dramatically. Hundreds of thousands of species, perhaps as many as 20% of all species on earth, will be irretrievably lost as their habitats vanish, especially in tropical forests. All of this was wrong. All of this was wrong. This is, this is the smartest minds in the United States government under the Carter administration 40 years ago. Does anybody care that they were all wrong? Time magazine back in 1980. There will be environmental nightmares as man invades their wild habitats and pollutants rain down on them. 500,000 to 2 million species of plants and animals may die off in the next two decades. That was 1980. We're now four decades after that. So they're saying uh, 2 million species die off. Does anyone, anyone just, I know I can't hear you right now, but do you want to guess how many species have actually disappeared in the last 40 years? And that includes like plants, insects, everything. 872. 800, is that 2 million? Keep in mind, we're discovering new species all the time, too. Is that is that 2 million? 870. If you told me, Buck, I'm going to give you $2 million, and then you actually gave me $872, I would be very disappointed. Very, very disappointed. Keep that in mind. All right. I've got more for you on this, on the liberal delusions and the madness of the left when we come back. I don't think last week's hearing was actually about having staff question the attorney general. I think it's, as my colleague said earlier, I think it's all about trying to destroy Bill Barr because Democrats are nervous. He's going to get to the bottom of everything. He's going to find out how and why this investigation started in the first place. The attorney general said three and a half weeks ago in front of the Senate Finance Committee, spying did occur. Said it twice. Yes, spying did occur. Third, he said, there's a basis for my concern about the spying that took place. And maybe the most interesting thing, two terms he used that, frankly, I find frightening. He said there was, in his judgment, he thinks there may have been unauthorized surveillance and political surveillance. Oh, yes, there was. And that is why the Democrats are a bit desperate right now. And that's also why they're going after Attorney General Barr. I got some breaking news for you here. Well, not of the kind that I particularly want to share with you, but it is the news is what it is. The House Judiciary Committee has voted 24 to 16 to hold Attorney General Bill Barr in contempt in the fight over the unredacted Mueller report. This is uh, toothless noise and nonsense from the Democrat crybabies. Overcome with their Trump derangement syndrome, their climate change hysteria, their need for safe spaces and for the destruction of of their political enemies through any means possible. Now, they're both very fragile and very aggressive at the same time. That's what you see on the left. But Bill Barr, they're going after. Here, here's how this goes. Uh, the good news is that the only people who could prosecute the attorney general for uh, the contempt of Congress would be the Department of Justice. So I don't think there's actually going to be anything that comes of this other than Democrats looking like the bunch of whiny crybabies that they are. Keep in mind... 
They want the attorney general to release information that is under congressionally passed statute, not authorized to be released to the Congress. There is such a thing. There are limitations. Congress doesn't just get to say, I want this thing, therefore I get this thing. That's not how it works. But they want him to effectively violate that law. Who wants to guess if Congress would be willing to go after him if he did break that law, by the way? I, I think that they would say, give us, give us the 6E grand jury material or else. And then he said, all right, fine, I'll, I'll authorize giving you that material. And say, oh, look at, look at Attorney General Barr willing to undermine the law itself by giving us the 6E grand jury material. Uh, these people are utterly unserious. They really are. These Democrats, they don't, they don't care about how foolish this all is to anyone who understands anything. They don't care that this is just going to go into a protracted court battle and that their response to so much of what the administration has done here that has been transparent, that has been in good faith, that has been, all right, we'll, we'll go along with this machinery of intended partisan destruction that is the Mueller probe, we'll release the report. Barr didn't have to release the report at all. The only thing the special counsel regulation says is that a report will be delivered to the attorney general. Attorney General Barr would have been completely within his rights to hold the entire report. I wouldn't have recommended that, but he could have done it. Instead, he released all but 2% of the report. And even CNN is befuddled by how stupid the Democrats look here. Play 15. I find it odd that the Democrats decided to use this as the thing to hold the attorney general in contempt over. I mean, look, they have a lot of things to be mad at him over. They accused him of misleading testimony. Obviously, he didn't show up for a hearing in the past week. So there's a lot of things that they could be mad about. And this one, this is a report that is 92% public. Only 8% of it was unredacted. The attorney general last week in his testimony said only 2% of volume 2, which is the thing that the Democrats say they care most about, the obstruction part, is redacted. So, you know, it's kind of hard to understand how they went nuclear so quickly on this. It, it seems rather like they have started a constitutional crisis, not the other way around. Yep, the Democrats started this constitutional crisis. Don't forget that, team. For a few weeks now, I've been reminding you that Mother's Day is fast approaching. Now it's just days away. So 1-800-Flowers is here to pick out a gorgeous bouquet for you that'll show her she's loved. 1-800-Flowers still has amazing offers on beautiful Mother's Day bouquets and arrangements starting at $29.99. Now that's an offer that mom would approve of. There's still time to have your bouquet delivered on Mother's Day, but you've got to get moving. With an amazing selection of sweets, treats, and bouquets, 1-800-Flowers has everything you need for Mother's Day and she'll never guess how great of a last-minute deal you scored. Mother's Day bouquets and arrangements starting at $29.99 is an amazing offer, but you have to order today. Trust 1-800-Flowers to make mom feel loved. Order today from 1-800-Flowers.com. To order beautiful and vibrant Mother's Day bouquets starting at $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com buck. That's 1-800-Flowers.com buck. Mother's Day is Sunday, so order today and save at 1-800-Flowers.com buck. President Trump has a new favorite word, and every time he uses it, he is lying. And that is the word spy. His baseless claims of spies. This is the president of the United States telling people don't believe what this federal government is doing. 
And that has very, very dangerous consequences. The notion that somehow the FBI implanted, planted uh, someone inside the campaign to spy on the campaign is just not true. There's absolutely no evidence there was a spy. He wants you to believe that his campaign was spied on, and it's one of the worst things that we've ever seen from government. The media is a total disgrace. <laughs> okay, so to start with that, total disgrace. Uh, you know, there you have just some of the, the usual anti-Trump voices with the, the hysteria, the nonsense about how there wasn't spying. Here's a headline from 2017, and this is something I know quite a bit about because I was a part of the unit of the NYPD that was accused of this. The headline is, quote, after spying on Muslims, New York police agree to greater oversight. Now, hold on a second here. I was in this unit of the NYPD. I was working day after day in, day out on these very cases with these individuals, working with the undercovers, working with the people that were confidential informants. And all of the stuff that was being done, all of it was memorialized in writing. Uh, there was a, a criminal predicate. There was a reasonable suspicion standard. There was, I mean, we, we were going through, we had lawyers reviewing everything. It was all done within what were thought to be the boundaries of legitimate law enforcement. But because of political sensitivities, people were saying, well, you're, you're looking for terrorism. What's all this stuff? What's all the surveillance of mosques that's going on? Um, most terrorist plots against the city of New York have a nexus in a mosque because most of the major terrorist plots against the city of New York, at least for the last 20 years or so, have involved radical Islam. I, you know, we can get sad about this or we can be upset about that reality, but that's just the truth. I had friends who worked in the white nationalist unit. There was a white nationalist unit, the NYPD. They were very, very bored. Nothing to do. There was an anarchist terrorist unit there. There, you know, there were different cyber terrorism units. We had all kinds of stuff. You know who was really busy? The, hey, we have to stop guys who want to yell Allahu Akbar blowing up Times Square. That unit, that was my unit, we were busy with things to do. But let me just get back to this headline here in the New York Times. After spying on Muslims, New York police agreed to greater oversight. Uh, there, there was no spying. It was, it was surveillance, you see. It was surveillance. It was legally predicated investigative work. I could play these games all day. The word spying appears in this New York Times write-up over and over again. And do you know what they're really talking about in, in some of these cases? Uh, they are talking about reporting on stuff that is out in the open. We're not talking about FISA here, folks. We're not talking about using the most technologically advanced and invasive capabilities the federal government has. We're talking about Hey, did you hear what that imam said about how like we need to strike against the infidels and you know maybe somebody should take up jihad? Yeah, he said it in front of the congregation, but you know that's spying. It's in a public place, but that's spying. Okay, and I, I just want to know where the boundaries are. I, I want to know what the real rules are supposed to be. Um, I want to know what what they contend here is. Now, the, the new guidepost for what qualifies as spying. I mean, the, the, the Democrats, they're just so 
it's hard to have a conversation with them because they're so delusional on all this stuff. And that's really the, the theme of the, of the show today. It's just the Democrats, have, they've lost their minds on a lot of issues, on climate change stuff, on Russia collusion, no longer able to have a normal, a normal conversation with them. Um, I mean, here, if we're going to talk about how, how crazy it can get, um, you might as well take a moment to hear from, I just want to make sure I have the right guy. Oh, yes. That's right. Steve. Yep. Steve Cohen. Play 16. We've got a man who has been suggested might be financially dependent on the Russians. Why would he be financially dependent on the Russians? Well, we now know he lost over a billion dollars in a decade in the 80s and 90s. He was broke. No bank would loan him a penny. He was broke. And if it weren't for him being president, he'd be in prison with Michael Cohen today as individual one. And he obstructed justice, as the Mueller report says it so. We are in danger. We are in danger of hearing the dumbest stuff ever uttered by any human being. That's what we're in danger of. What the heck is Steve Cohen talking about? I mean, that is really, that is a, if you were creating a symptom chart, you ever go in the doctor's office, they have all like the, you know, if you have a cough or if you have, and they walk you through some of the, they have these charts on the walls. Uh, if you had a symptom chart of Trump derangement syndrome, you could put Steve Cohen's little monologue there right on it. Financially dependent on Russia, and we are in danger. He lost a billion dollars and was broke. Where Where is the evidence of a financial dependence on Russia? Where is he getting this from? I mean, this is a member of Congress, my friends. This is not just some crazy guy who's ranting on the internet somewhere in some uh, comment section. He's saying that Trump may be still dependent on Russia. There's so much of Trump's background, finances, everything. The Mueller report, don't you think that Mueller would have been able to figure out if all of Trump's money came from Russia? Don't you think that we would know at some level if that were the case at this point? Any sane person would say yes, but we're not talking about sane people anymore. We're talking about something else here with these anti-Trump libs. We are in danger of a political schism in this country based upon the reality-based and the Trump deranged and crazy. We might already be there. And I don't know how we come back from it, but that's what makes me think we're in danger. But you have tens of thousands of FBI agents on the front lines every day doing work to protect America, to keep this country safe. And when the attorney general undermines the integrity of those agents by suggesting they're involved in spying against a president, what does that do to the reputation? Yeah, it's deeply concerning because ordinary folks will accept what the president says, what the attorney general says, and that hurts our ability to be trusted as FBI agents in courtrooms and at doorways. So it's a very bad thing. Sanctacomi here in full effect with an assist from a mainstream Lib reporter there, Nora O'Donnell, now is going to be taking the Dan Rather seat at CBS Evening News. I wonder how long before she's engaged in her own massive fake news scandal. But Sanctacomi takes the takes what she's given him and runs with it. This is a classic. This is the media has been doing this now for two years. What they say is anytime Trump criticizes anything that's gone on at the FBI with regard to the spying, we'll get into that in a second. Uh, the way this was handled. We've seen the text messages from Page and Strzok. We know that there was bias against Trump. We know that they hated 
President Trump, and they were working to undermine him, to destroy his candidacy, to destroy his presidency. We know that James Comey, as a former FBI director, leaked memos to the New York Times to get payback. I mean, this is not ethical, okay stuff to do. But when you point that out, when you say, hold on a second, there was bad behavior at the FBI, behavior that the inspector general found. Why Why did Andy McCabe get fired right before he was going to start collecting his pension? Why did James Comey get fired by the President of the United States? Why were these actions taken? You know, struck, paged, demoted from their jobs, from their roles. Why has all this happened? Because none of them did anything wrong? But you see that the straw man that Nora O'Donnell, Nora O'Donnell sets up there is, well, there's all these tens of thousands of FBI agents doing all this good work. No one's saying that everyone in the FBI is bad. No one's saying the FBI is not a great American law enforcement institution. Trump is merely saying that some of the people running it did really bad stuff. And if it weren't hurting Trump, I promise you, the lib media, who usually love to dump all over law enforcement, and this is the same lib media, and I have not forgotten that under Obama, we're completely willing to go along. Cops are racist. Not a cop, cops. Cops, plural, in general, racist. Cops are not to be trusted. Cops engage in, you know, the racist hunting of minority men. Uh, you know, all, all this stuff. There was, there was no, there was no effort at pushback from the Nora O'Donnells. Of hold on a second, you know, vast majority, ninety nine percent of law enforcement is doing a great job day to day across the country. Yeah, there are a couple of bad cops here and there, of course, but there's a couple of bad everything's in any large profession. There, that wasn't it. It was no. Black lives matter. We need to hear more from them. We need to hear about how racist and terrible the cops are. And then people like me would say, you have millions of interactions between law enforcement and American uh, men and women across the country every, every year. And you have less than 100 law enforcement involved fatal shootings in the country. 320 million people in this country. Less than 100 law enforcement involved shootings. And we're going to act like this is a national crisis that needs to be the biggest news story in the country. And that is going to justify, at least to the left, actions including people lighting neighborhoods on fire, looting CVSs. Look what happened in Ferguson. Look what happened in Baltimore. You know, that where was the media there saying, hold on a second, law enforcement's doing a great job in this country. It's not fair to tar them all with the same brush because of, or paint them all with the same brush because of what's uh, you know gone on in a few places here or there. It's just not fair. They weren't saying that. But oh no, the FBI. Oh, every time Trump criticizes the FBI's senior figures who have engaged in bad behavior, then you have this, the media. It's an assist. I mean, it's like she threw, a, uh, she threw the ball up in the air for Comey to dunk it. That's what that was. Don't you think the FBI has all these great people? Everyone... Republicans are the ones who like the FBI, the, the libs, the Democrats, the ones who usually like, oh, law enforcement can't trust them. They enforce the law. The law has a disproportionate impact in a lot of cases on minorities. Therefore, law enforcement must be racist. That's usually their position. Who are the ones, by the way, who want to do have been pushing harder for criminal justice reform? It's actually the right. It's not the left. But then we have the usual sanctacomi nonsense here about 
about the FBI does not spy. Remember, John Brennan said the CIA does not spy. I mean, so he's just an imbecile. Guy's the head was the head of a spying agency. I don't, I don't know how people show up to work there and not think, what kind of bozos used to run this place? I think that, and I haven't been in the building in, God, over a decade now. But here's the Comey version of what the FBI does and whether they're spying or not. Play 11. The FBI doesn't spy. The FBI investigates. We investigated a very serious allegation that Americans might be hooked up with the Russian effort to attack our democracy. The Republicans need to breathe into a paper bag. If, if we had confronted the same facts with a different candidate, say a Democrat candidate, where one of their advisors was talking to a foreign adversary's representative about that adversary's interference in our election, they would be screaming for the FBI to investigate, and that's all we did. That is a lie. All of what he said there is a lie. Foreign? Who? Who's? Wait, speaking the foreign representative. So now we're going to, now we're going to play this game where we don't have the facts that we have. Is that what we're doing, Sanctacomi? Because Papadopoulos was approached by somebody who was sent to him by the FBI as a setup. So for, for, who's the foreign representative of the country here? Oh, are we going to go back to the meeting in Trump Tower? Because that. That wasn't what started the investigation, folks. That had nothing to do with anything. And that meeting that, you know, if, if, if that's a terrible meeting and that's illegal, then you have to explain to me why paying for Russian oppo research for the dossier is okay. If you pay for the activity, then it's fine. Uh, I know a lot of guys that would say, whoa, I didn't know that was the case. Uh, so Comey, though, saying the FBI does not spy and investigates. I mean, that's just that's just a lie. What the FBI does with the counterintelligence powers that it has. I mean, you could always call that. You could call any spying investigating. If if I, you know, if, if I task somebody to show up in a foreign country and try to get access to their sensitive information, they're investigating. You know, we can play these word games all day. The FBI engages in counterintelligence activity. The FBI is considered a member of the intelligence community. Local law enforcement's not a member of the intelligence community. Your state, you know, your stateies or your state uh, state troopers, they're not members of the intelligence community. Why is the FBI a member of the intelligence community? Because there's a difference between intelligence and law enforcement, and the FBI does both. I know because I've worked with FBI in their intelligence uh, capacity, and I worked for an intelligence agency. This stuff really isn't hard, but Comey's a clown and a liar. And his day is coming, folks. When we see what really happened here, we see what he signed off on and what he was a part of. I mean, a lot of people saying, oh, I, I guess I misread James Comey. All you really have to know about this guy, other than the fact that he says stupid things like the FBI does not spy, it clearly does. Okay, the FBI spies. We have this... This uh, and then there's an interesting kind of gray area in conversation here. In a lot of other countries, the primary federal law enforcement agency uh, does, in fact, do spying, does, in fact, uh, you know, do MI5 like work. Right. They, 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 that you have you have a domestic intelligence agency. That is engaged in that here, the FBI does domestic intelligence agency work, but we still call it a law enforcement agency. You know, we, we, we don't we have a, a slightly different system, but the FBI really doubles double hats on this. But if we, all you really have to know 
about James Comey is the following, that he took the position that Martha Stewart, okay, I know you're a buck, what do you, I, I know I'm all hung up on the Martha, just trust me on this one, okay? He took the position to the shock of his colleagues, some of whom I have talked to, okay, in the federal prosecutor community, uh, that Martha Stewart saying she was innocent of insider trading was itself a form of fraud because it propped up the stock price of her company. The most convoluted, nonsensical legal theory imaginable under the circumstances. That was a Comeyism. And now, as you see, it was probably a Mullerism, too. Mueller would go for some nonsense like that as well. Comey is not a good guy. He had a lot of people at the FBI apparently brainwashed with all of his holier-than-thou bullcrap. And we're going to find out more about what Comey really did, and it's not going to look good for this guy. We consider a report recommending that the House of Representatives hold Attorney General William Barr in contempt of Congress for defying a valid subpoena issued by this committee. This is not a step we take lightly. It is the culmination of nearly three months of requests, discussions, and negotiations with the Department of Justice for the complete unredacted report by Special Counsel Mueller into Russian interference in the 2016 election, along with the underlying evidence. Unredacted report, Nadler is demanding. Uh, what, what is really going on with this fight that is brewing, or it's actually underway, I should say, brewing between the executive branch and Congress? What are the Dems demanding? What is all this about? Our friend Sean Davis joins us now. He's a co-founder at The Federalist. You can see thefederalist.com for all the fantastic work and writing that they do over there. But uh, Sean also was chief investigator for Senator Tom Coburn, so he knows a thing or two about the infighting on Capitol Hill over getting the documents and how all this stuff works. Good man to talk about this today. Sean, thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. All right, Sean. What, first off, the, the report is, has been released. Okay, the Mueller special counsel report is out there. I think 2% of it is redacted, over 440 pages released. And the Democrats are, are demanding what? What is their beef here? Can you just walk us through? What are they claiming the problem is? Uh, so as best I can tell, Democrats are demanding a couple things. They are demanding a full unredacted report which includes grand jury information, which by law the attorney general can't share with anyone. And they're also demanding what they're calling all of the underlying evidence, all of the interviews, all the documents from the White House, all the transcripts, all the White House staffers' notes. And while I am sympathetic to them, to their request when it comes to asking for, say, DOJ documents, um, kind of stuff that falls within typical congressional oversight of an agency they created, like the Department of Justice, the demands that they're making now are, are they're silly and they're just not based in reality or based in law. Um, I kind of laughed at that uh, Nadler clip when he says, we've been demanding this report for three months. Well, the report hasn't existed for three months. Um, it's barely existed for even two, if that. So I think, I think he's a little out to lunch on this. And I think what's actually going on is a couple things. Democrats are mad that there was no collusion and no obstruction. So they're trying to scramble and recover from that because that was a pretty big blow. Um, I think they're terrified at what Barr is going to under, uh, uncover with the spygate and the improper and illegal spying. And so they're trying to dirty him up ahead of those findings coming out. And then I think number three, they're still all angry that the Republican House held Eric Holder in contempt for withholding 
uh, agency DOJ documents on Fast and Furious, stuff that had nothing to do with the White House or executive privilege. And so they're trying to get a little revenge here. Um, but what they're not doing is engaging in any sort of good faith back and forth in order to get the information they say they want. I mean, they went in about a span of a week from saying that Bill Barr is a liar to maybe somebody should go. Maybe somebody uh, should tell the sergeant at arms in Congress to go arrest him if he won't show up. I mean, th- this is just unhinged stuff. No, and, and what you're seeing is generally what happens with a delusional person when uh, the gravity of reality starts to set in. Okay, so they got out on a limb with this absurd Russian collusion theory for two years. Uh, those of us with a brain and common sense and the ability to follow basic facts kind of knew from the beginning there, there was nothing there there. So they're having a really, really difficult time grappling with the fact that St. Robert of Mueller came back and said, actually, there was no collusion at all. And by the way, um, even if there was obstruction, which we're not even sure there was, I'm not charging him with it. So it, like, to understand their behavior and how unhinged it is, you have to appreciate um, how badly they have been damaged by the fact that there was zero Russian collusion, number one, and number two, that there was likely a whole lot of impropriety. Um, both from House Democrats like Adam Schiff, who is illegally leaking information, as well as all of the shenanigans going on at DOJ and the FBI and probably even the CIA regarding uh, the spying against the Trump campaign. So they've got a whole mess they're trying to get themselves out of. And they've apparently decided that uh, William Barr is going to be the fall guy here and they're going to take out all their anger on him. And they're making this claim. And we're speaking to Sean Davis uh, from The Federalist here. Uh, Sean, they're making this claim that they want the the unredacted report to be available to them. But my understanding is that there are statutes, specifically statutes regarding uh, grand jury information, uh, C, uh, 6C, uh, 6E information, that Congress is effectively asking the Department of Justice to violate congressionally a congressionally valid statute that absent a court order, they would be violating. So Congress is basically telling the Department of Justice to break the law or else they're going to enforce the law against them. You're exactly right. So there are there is a couple different categories of redacted information and in what was made public by Barr in the 448 page Mueller report. There was um, classified information. I think there was ongoing matters, which um, was related to, I think, ongoing Roger Stone litigation and litigation against the Russian hackers. Um, there was some privacy stuff in there, like, uh, you know, people mentioned who never had any charges or anything against them. They were tertiary characters, and there's no need to drag their names through the mud. And then there was grand jury information. Now, Barr has made available to Congress, to a whole bunch of people, I think the entire judiciary, some of their staffers, said, hey, you can come look at every single thing uh, that's in that report. We've removed all the redactions except the grand jury information, which under the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure I think Rule 6E is why they call it 6E information. We cannot by law disclose grand jury information. And not only are Democrats demanding that grand jury information, they haven't even gone over to DOJ to see the rest of those redactions that were removed. I mean, they've been given like 98% of what they asked for, and they've been given 100% of what's allowable under law. And instead, they've just decided they're going to have this long, drawn-out temper tantrum so they can make themselves feel better about the fact that there was no collusion. What are they really trying to accomplish here? Like, what's the if you if you were you know behind enemy lines, so to speak, in in the office of you know Jerry Nadler and you know, Nancy Pelosi and all these different figures that 
are, are creating this ongoing, really seems obsessive news cycle around the, the Mueller report as though we don't have a book length and a, a hefty book at that report with all kinds of information, you know, everything. And it was very oppositional to Trump. It was a prosecutorial document, not a fair minded document, not supposed to take both sides. Uh, what do you think their game plan? What are the Democrats trying to get out of this? Is there a smart strategy at work here from their side or are they just uh, a little crazy? Is this just a, a, a symptom of Trump having broken them in some way? I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, so, again, they're reeling from the fact that there was no collusion, and they had really pinned all their hopes on that. They'd hoped they were going to be able to impeach him for either being a treasonous Russian agent or having obstructed justice, um, violating federal law, and they didn't get either of those. So they have a ravenous base, which has been told by both the members of Congress, Democrat lawmakers, and their friends in media for years that Trump was a treasonous Russian, Russian agent, and they're out for blood. And, and so they've got this issue where apparently for the moment they've decided they're not going to impeach Trump. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. And so you have this base that's just frothing, just wants Trump's head on a pike, and they're told, wait, there's going to be no impeachment. So I think a lot of this is some face saving from Democrats trying to show that they really are tough and, and they really are going to get a pound of flesh out of the Trump administration. And so they, they're going to try and go to whatever lengths they can probably short of impeachment unless they talk themselves into that, to show how big and tough they are. So, so I think that's the first part. And then the second is uh, I do think they are legitimately worried about what bars and the Inspector General DOJ's report on improper spying is going to show. And the best way they can blunt that, because they obviously can't deal with facts and realities we've seen from the collusion narrative, but the best way they can deal with uh, the bar Spygate report coming out is to just uh, destroy the messenger. Uh, attack the messenger before it does. So hopefully when it comes out, they can say, oh, you can safely ignore this. This corrupt, lying, contemptible attorney general was behind it, and you don't need to pay attention to anything he says. So I think it's a little bit of base pleasing, a little bit of crazy, and a little bit of defensive preparation for the Spygate reports that are going to come out. Cosign. That sounds about right to me. Sean Davis, everybody. Check out his latest at thefederalist.com. Also follow him for the wreckage of liberals that he leaves behind in the digital space. Uh, uh, Sean Davis on Twitter. You should check him out there. And, uh, Sean, thanks for all your work, and uh, good to talk to you as always. Uh, Same here, Buck. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Team, we live in the age of the Kardashians, and the New York Times has managed to descend to that level. Uh, The fact is, let's be clear. Donald Trump is rich, and this is not a shock. Apparently, he was clever about what he was able to do with the tax code, and in fact, the other taxpayers helped make him rich because <clears throat> he did legally what he was allowed to do. I would love to see the Salzberger family release all of their records, show us all the different tax advantages that their companies have taken over the years. How did, how did they do, for example, when they sold the Boston Globe? Uh, I, I think that this kind of one-sided, dishonest attack is part of what is sickening American politics and making it harder to get decent people to run. I, I think Newt's uh, stepping onto a pretty important, pretty important ground here with this. Newt loot. We got to have Newt back on the show. It's been a while. I haven't had Newt on in like maybe a year or two now. Producer Mike, let's make a note. Let's get let's get Newt on. I like Newt. He was actually here the other day. We I'm talking to his people. He didn't know this, but I'm already talking to him. 
Well, see, look at that, dude. We're, we're Mike. We we have like a mind meld here, my friend. You know, from from New York to D.C., you can't even. It's like it's like we're sitting next to each other. Um, no, it, it's uh, he he's one of the voices in the in, in our current moment. I mean, I, I think Newt, Victor Davis, Hanson. These are really important perspectives on all things Trump. Uh, they bring a, a degree of of wisdom and knowledge to the Trump movement that I think is really useful, really helpful. Um, but on, on the Trump tax issue, uh, there this is this is an, another manifestation of Trump derangement syndrome. Today, you had all these journalists trying to hyperventilate over Trump's tax returns, which I suppose this was just leaked uh, from someone somewhere in New York State. His tax returns from 1985 to 86, I think. And it showed that he took losses. Uh, I think the biggest losses of any taxpayer in the country. And it showed that he took a loss carried forward, which is a 100% legal, acceptable, in the tax code thing to do. Now, you can argue with whether or not you think that that should be the case in the tax code or, or not. Um, I would note that, you know, if you want people to take risks and if you want to spur investment, you probably don't want them to also, after they've lost a ton of money, get socked with really high taxes on whatever money they have. But Newt here is, is also pointing out that, uh, you know, other people would not be able to handle this kind of assault. I mean, uh, there are so many individuals where if you went after their taxes back, now we're talking, what, back th- almost 30 years? You know, this is what they'll, they could not get, the mainstream media could not and would not get Barack Obama's college records I'm sure, you know, they could have sued. They could have gone to court. They could have done something. They didn't even want them. They didn't even want them. We, we've still never seen Barack Obama's SAT scores. We've never seen his grades. You must say, Buck, well, who cares? Oh, uh, we cared about John Kerry's. We cared about George W. Bush's. We cared about, you know. But with taxes now, this is now sacrosanct. Oh, we must see the person's tax. Not just for the last 10 years. We're supposed to see them now back into the, the 80s, apparently. You know, and I'm reminded of how they went after Romney on the tax issue. Romney, who, I mean, talk about a guy who is just the most squared away. Uh, you know, he, he's the guy that you, you feel like he probably pays more than he should in taxes just because he doesn't want to stiff Uncle Sam. You know, he's a very spit and polish by the book, by the rules individual. And Harry Reid, very famously, you will recall, went on the floor of the Senate and said Mitt Romney hasn't paid taxes in 10 years. Now, you may say, Buck, a lot of people knew that that wasn't true, but plenty of people probably didn't know that. And it was a real smear, and Harry Reid later kind of chuckled about how Romney didn't win, and so who cares that he lied about it? It was just a lie. It was just a lie. It was just defamation done from the sanctity of the senate floor though so there you can't bring any kind of legal challenge to it there's no defamation from the senate floor that's just an exemption for it so he was able to do that and i'm just reminded of how you know this is this is why so many so many people who saw trump early on as an important political phenomenon and really as the start of a political movement we need somebody who can withstand all this stuff romney couldn't take the heat or at least Maybe Romney could handle the heat, but didn't know how to fight back effectively. And if you if you lose, you still lose. You know, even if you lose gracefully, that has been the mantra for Republicans stretching back for a long time. Well, you know, lose, but lose gracefully. And, you know, we, we eked out a win against Al Gore in 2000 against Al Gore, folks. 
Guy's a clown. Guy's a joke. And barely were able to defeat Al Gore. I mean, this is remarkable stuff when you think about who the Democrats have put forward. And then we, you know, we finally Trump comes along and, and ends the Clinton dynasty, at least for the foreseeable future. But they're going after him on this tax thing, acting like it's a big story. None of this is new. None of this really is, is information that is going to change anything. But they're fixated on this. They are fixated. You know, the media does have an obsession, and the obsession is to find the thing that will end Trump. Whatever that thing is, they've tried. They thought it was campaign finance. They thought it was porn star payoff. They thought it was the Russia collusion. They thought it was his dealings with the Trump Tower Moscow. They, they keep going through all these different iterations of, of ending the Trump presidency, and this is an extension of the mass psychosis that they have. It really is. Speaking about taxes, though, I got to say, I'm, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to last in a blue, in any blue state, whether it's D.C. or New York or this tax stuff is just out of control. And I talked to friends of mine, particularly friends that have moved to Florida in the last couple of years. And you've got some nice red parts of Florida. Lovely, lovely uh, beaches and way better tax treatment. Governor Chris Sununu had some interesting comments to make about these blue states and what's facing them in the tax situation. Play clip one. What would you do in Connecticut? I'd right actually now, make them manage. The, the problem with places like New York and Connecticut and California is they don't manage themselves. They don't put themselves in a position to be successful because they're worried more about the politics and less about what actually gets, gets you know, better, better results. When businesses scream to the state of Connecticut, you need to cut taxes, stop abusing us or we're walking away, and then they did walk away. And what was Connecticut's response? Nothing. It's insulting. So businesses are saying, you know, we want to work with a government. We want to work with communities and administrations that actually listen to us. That's what New Hampshire does. Tennessee, Texas, Nevada, um, Utah, uh, Idaho. These are the states that I'm competing with to get business. It truly is an international market. There are the states that are well run and have decent tax climate and states that are losing people because they don't. And I got to tell you, I think that these a lot of these blue states are kind of coasting on legacy and the wealth accumulation that they've had in the past and the infrastructure that was put in place a long time ago, particularly the the private sector infrastructure, meaning the jobs and the companies that are there. Um, I I think you're going to see continued flight from New York, California, Connecticut. Uh, There are just other places better, especially if you're a young guy or gal and you think about starting a family. It's too tough to make it work in these blue states. They're too dysfunctional. The taxes are too darn high. It's also important that uh, we stop seeing religion used as a kind of cudgel, as if, as if God belonged to a political party. And, and if he did, I can't imagine it would be the one that, that sent the current president into the White House. I, don't you love that Democrat tactic? That's Mayor Pete, who's supposed to be so erudite, so sophisticated, gold-plated resume, above the fray, they say about Mayor Pete. He says, we should stop using religion as a cudgel. So let me use religion as a cudgel here. You know, let me use religion as well. Let's let's just not do that thing we're doing. But I'm going to do it one more time when I'm asking you not to do it. If he did, he would hate if if God belonged to a political party, he would hate Republicans. I think that that's given that the Democratic Party is the party of of death on demand with abortion. That right right there, right then and there falls apart for me. I I don't think that that's a serious argument that can be made. Um, I don't think that that's a serious uh, a serious case 
and I think what's so fascinating here is that the Democrats have done a bit of rewriting of history, and you're going to see this from Mayor Pete, where uh, gay marriage is now viewed as something that the Democratic Party was uh, all for, and, and that they they were the ones that you know had this big breakthrough of how gay marriage should be the law of the land, when in reality, Barack Obama ran as a traditional marriage candidate. This just gets completely wiped out of the history. Barack Obama ran in favor of traditional marriage. And then in a classic Democrat move was like, yeah, I just did that to fool those fool those rubes who go to church in the Bible Belt. You know, enough of them that they would vote for me. I didn't really mean it. I wasn't really serious about it. We had uh, our discussion about Democrat Takia earlier in the week. If they lie and it is a lie that benefits the Democrat Party, then it's okay. And it's not something that we should uh, that, that they will look down upon. They think that that's fine. Um, we are going to have a very interesting Democrat primary going forward here because you're, you're going to see efforts to try to win over white working class voters, many of whom are, are Christian and, and at least somewhat church going. And you've got a political party with the Democrats that not just abortion on demand, but uh, thinks that the distinctions between male and female don't make any difference anymore. Or at least they're willing to erase those distinctions on a whim. Believe that the transgender movement is the new civil rights movement. Believe that it is, in fact, offensive to say things like men cannot get their periods or, or w- women are not the only ones who get periods. I can't even keep up with the, the lunacy here. The anti-scientific, non-scientific lunacy of the left. And they're going to try to appeal to people who, at least in some, in, in some states and some places have a, a more traditional view of society and morality and just American public life. And the Democratic Party is, is an increasingly radical party. They have not tacked toward the, the center. They are not taking a more centrist approach at all, even though right now it seems to me that they are all in on Biden, which I got to tell you, you know, may, maybe I'm out on a limb here because I've been saying this all along. I do not understand how how anybody uh, could think that this guy is really a serious contender. And I, I really appreciate this today. I saw none other than Ronald Reagan himself, folks. You, you know, if, if you don't want to take my word for it, here's what Ronald Reagan said um, back in I'm trying to make sure I have this one set up. The campaign to uh, this is from the campaign to succeed Reagan. And Biden launched his bid for the presidency. This is from National Review today in June of 1986. And here is what Reagan said about about Biden. First meeting with Ken D and the VP, Howard late getting back from Tennessee. Reagan wrote on June 15th This is what he wrote about him. Some talk about Senator Biden now candidate for president. I saw him on CNN last night speaking to the John F. Kennedy School at Harvard. He's smooth, but a pure demagogue out to save America from the Reagan doctrine. Boom. Smooth, but a pure demagogue. A perfect, perfect description of Joe Biden from Ronald Reagan himself. And who, who's been, I'm the one who's been telling you all week, I didn't even know about this Reagan quote until today, that Biden is the quintessential say whatever he has to say at any point in time politician. No big ideas, no big thoughts, no core of belief or purpose other than the greater glory of Joe Biden. 
And you can say what you will about some of the, and I will say a lot about them, a lot of these Democrats who are running right now for the nomination, I do think there are some true believers among them. I think Bernie Sanders is a true believer. Unfortunately, he's a true believer. And communism, baby, it's coming back, making a comeback. I do think he's a true believer, though. I think that Elizabeth Warren, as much as she is a phony, she's such a phony that she's even convinced her. She, she believes some of her own BS. I think that she believes it. Um, I think that I think Andrew Yang is a true believer, although I don't find him bothersome like I do some of these other candidates. I think he's an I think he's wrong on some stuff, but he's earnest and he's you're like, who's Andrew Yang? I think he's at maybe one percent of the vote or something, but he has ideas. He's an ideas guy and he'll talk about his ideas. I, I give Yang I give Yang credit. Uh, and I did give you, to interrupt you here, Buck. Did you hear Yang's uh, policy or ideas on paying politicians? No. What do you say? I thought it was really interesting. I read about it last week. He talked about the salaries of the president and our congressmen and senators, how they need to be greatly increased. If we paid them way more, then they'd be less likely to be reliant on, um, you know, on, on payoffs and bribes and all that kind of stuff that, you know, that they give See? into. I mean, we could debate, we could debate whether the lobbyists is what I was it's, trying to say. It's a, it's an idea. It's a real idea, folks. So, you know, Yang's got some real ideas, but, but Biden, as Reagan said, Pure demagogue. Perfect description. I've received a lot of feedback about a video I posted last week, and I want to provide some background. You see, I've lived across the street or next door to this particular Planned Parenthood, one of the most heavily protested Planned Parenthoods in America for the last 15 years. I've seen men and women and teens try to go there for routine health care, for checkups, for pap smears, for breast exams, for STD screenings, and yes, for abortions. I have seen firsthand the insults, the slurs, the attacks, and the racism that those protesters aim at mostly young girls going there for clinical care. As an activist and an advocate, I know why pushing back against harassment and discrimination are a must, even when they're uncomfortable. But last week, I wasn't a patient escort. I was a neighbor and a concerned citizen, and I was aggressive. And you're a jerk, Brian Sims. You're scummy. Apology not accepted, at least not by me. I'm feeling not by any of you either. You will recall that Representative Sims from the great state of Pennsylvania achieved quite a bit of notoriety earlier this week when he uh, really viciously harassed and harangued an elderly woman who was standing outside of a Planned Parenthood clinic in Philadelphia praying and then did the same thing to a couple of teenage girls, videotaping them, trying to humiliate them, uh, and really doing all this in a, in a very menacing, nasty fashion. He wasn't engaging with them. He wasn't trying to have a conversation. He was trying to publicly humiliate them, not just public as in on the street in front of this Planned Parenthood, but then to post this like he's some kind of hero posted to his social media accounts. He was proud of these interactions. And just to remind you of state rep Sims's tone and approach to teenage girls who are trying to convince women not to kill the babies in their wombs at a Planned Parenthood, here is what Sims said to these young girls. Play clip nine. What we've got here is a bunch of protesters bunch of pseudo-Christian protesters who've been out here shaming young girls for being here. Hi. And so here's the deal. I've got $100 to anybody who will identify any of these three. So we're I'm going to donate to Planned Parenthood. I'm going to donate to Planned Parenthood. And so look, a bunch of war. white people standing out in front of a Planned Parenthood, Christ war. shaming I'm people. Really There's nothing Christian about what you're doing. I'm nothing Christian at all about what you're doing. 
behind nothing Christian or loving or godly about what you're doing. So I've got $100 to anybody who will identify who this is. $100. Rich, what makes you think that it's your job to tell women what's right for their bodies? And the truth is, I'm not really asking because I don't care. Shame on you. Notice how much wokeness and social justice idiocy this complete moron worked into that very short exchange that we played for you. Says there's nothing godly about what these girls say they're doing, which is praying for the babies that are being aborted in this clinic. I'm pretty sure that that's quite godly to pray for the souls of the deceased, because that is what is happening in this facility. He notes that they are white as though that's and, and he kind of spits it out like that's a slur in and of itself. These white girls standing outside. Is there is there a problem with that, Representative Sims? Are, are, are white teenage girls not allowed to protest? Only non-white teenage girls allowed to protest? I just, it seemed like a very strange thing to note in his aggressive verbal uh, assault on these on these girls. I mean, and, and then the $100 offer to dox them, to humiliate them. He, he should know that that could very well, if that, and, and oh, there are so many social justice warriors online so many people who work for despicable smear organizations like Media Matters and, uh, you know, the Daily Coast and, you know, you, you name it, all these different websites. I mean, basically, a leftist website is a website without any honor or integrity. You can start there. Any number of them would be happy to dox, meaning to share the private contact information, home addresses of these girls. And where is the media on this, I would ask? Where's the rest of the media? This has now gotten a lot of attention. Uh, people have been talking about the story. I've obviously been talking about it for days because the same media that maybe a week or so ago, maybe two weeks ago, was telling us that criticism of Ilhan Omar is immoral and reckless because even though she's a public figure saying stupid and immoral and reckless things, by criticizing her, those of us on the right are giving oxygen to the hatred and the threats against her. So we were, in effect, if you criticize Ilhan Omar, the left was saying you're putting her life in danger. That was the storyline. Ilhan Omar is a public figure, and her her comments are not just fair game. It is necessary to push back on the anti-Semitism and the stupidity of somebody like an Ilhan Omar as much as the left wants to protect her and, oh, they're so, they want to just, she's in a special category because of all the, she represents all these different victim classes all put together and that means that she's special and you can't hold her to the same standards of speech you would other members of Congress. That's what the left is doing. Creating a, and enforcing a massive double standard for Ilhan Omar. Where is that standard, though, of criticizing somebody, whether you're right in the criticism or not, can put them in harm's way, and therefore it's immoral for you to do so. Where is that standard when it comes to a number of teenage girls who a public official, not just a public figure, Representative Brian Sims, states openly and, and really puts out a bounty on the privacy of these girls, asking for them, paying, to pay for them to be doxxed. Like it's the DNC paying for the dossier, and all of a sudden if you pay for the bad behavior, it makes it okay, huh? Note the uh, the mother of the teen girls who were confronted by Representative Sims had some some thoughts on how she, as a mother of young girls, a mother of young girls who.
who are out there praying for the souls of murdered babies at a Planned Parenthood clinic. Uh, how does she feel as a mom about this? Play eight. It was a shocking experience. What is not seen in that video was our first interaction with uh, Mr. Sims. He approached us about 20 minutes before that, um, came in, I would say he came in hot. He came in yelling at us um, and really was yelling very directly at the girls, very specifically at the girls. So I moved myself in between him and the girls asked him, you know, please talk to me. Let's let's have a conversation, the two of us as two adults. But he continued to yell at the girls. And then eventually he left. And about 10 minutes later is when he came back videotaping us. So after our first altercation with him, I, you know, came, went and talked to my girls and told them, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry this happened. I'm really proud of you guys for being here. Sadly, ironically, the two older girls looked at me and said, Mom, that was nothing compared to what people were screaming at us at the March for Life. This guy is a maniac. You're hearing here from the mom of these young girls. This wasn't even a heat of the moment thing. He initially accosted them. The mother steps in and says, we're adults. Why don't we talk? And he goes, no, no, no. Brian Sims wants to yell at a bunch of teenage girls. This guy looks to be maybe about my age, maybe a little older. I mean, I do have a youthful appearance. Uh, and I would never scream at teenage girls for protesting for any reason. Because there's an inherent level of menace from a you know six foot tall adult male screaming and threatening a bunch of teenage girls that's just not okay a decent person an honorable person an honorable man a real man wouldn't do that this guy did it not only to do it once then he came back to videotape it because he was so proud of it and now he wants to claim in his non-apology apology video oh it's just because i've seen all the horrible things that are said I'm sorry, the left likes to play this game a lot these days. Well, maybe I was out of line with this, but there are a lot of other people that do bad things, and that just kind of makes what I did okay. No, sorry. You don't get to just muddy the waters on what morality is here, on what ethics are. Individual culpability is what matters, not what someone else did somewhere else that influenced your thinking at this point in time for an interaction with a human being that had nothing to do with those other things you're talking about. That some people may have been mean to women going into Planned Parenthood clinics at another time and another place does not justify this guy acting like a lunatic when women, young women, are trying to pray outside of a Planned Parenthood clinic this time. But you see this. Uh, you, you know, this is the lack of accountability on the left is astonishing, but it's the reality because they know that the media is not going to pick up the, the mainstream media is not picking up the story, not touching this story. And this comes the same week where you had a former city councilwoman for the city of New York saying that, you know, it's not a human being in the womb. I mean, the, the, the stupidity on display from the left on these issues, the straw men they set up on the abortion issue too. Uh, it, it just tells you all you need to know about how morally decrepit the modern Democratic Party is and really how there is no coming back for them with all this stuff. They will never change their minds because their party has been degraded, ethically degraded in a way where they would have to form a new party once the final recognition comes in of what they've been doing. They'll have to form an entirely new party and they're not willing to do that because they want power. Uh, we'll be right back. You are now entering.
entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Almost one year ago, after withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal, President Trump implemented the strongest pressure campaign in history against the Islamic Republic of Iran. The goal remains simple, to deprive the outlaw regime of the funds that is used to destabilize the Middle East for four decades and incentivize Iran to behave like a normal country. Up to 40% of the regime's revenue comes from oil sales. It's the regime's number one source of cash. Before our sanctions went into effect, Iran would generate as much as $50 billion annually in oil revenue. Overall, to date, we estimate that our sanctions have denied the regime well north of $10 million. Our goal has been to get countries to cease importing Iranian oil entirely. Last November, we granted exemptions from our sanctions to seven countries and to Taiwan. We did this to give our allies and partners to wean themselves off of Iranian oil and to assure a well-supplied oil market. Today, I'm announcing that we will no longer grant any exemptions. We're going to zero, going to zero across the board. Now, Secretary of State Pompeo letting everybody know that the noose is getting tightened around the Iranian economy and the showdown between uh, between Trump and Tehran is heating up. Now you have the Iranians today threatening to end compliance with parts of the nuclear deal. The U.S. is also threatening new sanctions. We've got a lot of movement here in U.S.-Iranian relations. We've got a great guest right now to help us work through it all. Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Jonathan, always good to have you on. Great to be with you, Buck. All right, let's start first with what is the, before we talk about the Iranian uh, response thus far and what they're threatening. What is the change that's happened in the last week or so from the Trump administration position in terms of how we are approaching Iran now? Okay, so a couple of things. Number one, uh, we were issuing waivers. Uh, we were allowing uh, certain countries to continue to buy Iranian oil. We have zeroed that out. Uh, we're not really giving waivers on anything anymore related to Iran, not with its uh, uh, civilian nuclear program, really not with much of anything at this point. So we've done that. Uh, the Iranians are definitely feeling the uh, the financial squeeze. They're getting blocked out of markets. Uh, companies are afraid to do business with Iran because they know that they have a choice. They can either do business with us, the world's largest economy, or with the Iranians, which is a far, far smaller one that carries with it a good bit of risk. So the, the news is, is tightening, uh, as Secretary Pompeo said. In the meantime, you've got people in Iran who are increasingly growing restless, uh, and unhappy with the way that the regime has decided to uh, allocate the resources that it has. Uh, and now the U.S. today actually just imposed new sanctions. So now you've got oil off the table. You've got uh, petrochemicals um, and other oil products off the table. And then just today, you've now got iron, steel, aluminum, copper, all the precious metals that they sell. That's also off the table. So all the major things that give Iran uh, cash, foreign currency, are just drying up, and you can just feel the pressure mount. Now, what's supposed to happen if some of these countries we had been giving a waiver to so that they could do business with, essentially buy stuff from Iran, mostly oil, right? But other, if those countries say, you know what, I'm sorry, we're not going to dance to America's tune on this one, what do we do? 
So it really depends. Uh, you know, there are countries like China and, and Russia that will thumb their nose at the United States, and, and we don't really have a, a major response. But there are other countries, those that are a bit more plugged into the U.S.-led economy, uh, where, where perhaps we have a little bit more leverage, we can start to sanction them uh, or their businesses uh, or their banks or the people that are, are facilitating these transactions. And that's something that people just don't want. You have to remember that we still have the most powerful banking system in the world, that uh, the dollar is still the most ubiquitous uh, currency, the one that everybody uses around the world. So people want access to our system. It's trusted. Uh, the, the dollar is still king. So uh, it's, there's a real fear uh, of engaging in this kind of, uh, of, um, of transaction. Uh, but also remember that if we determine the risks, because it's our system, it can really hurt other uh, countries and other companies as they look to do business around the world. Now, the EU is still in the nuclear deal with, with Iran. Do we have concerns that there are EU countries that aren't going aren't going to go along with the sanctions we have in place? You know, do, do we think we have the leverage to to force them to keep playing ball our way? This is, I would say, one of the, the sort of tense things that are happening right now between us and the Europeans. It's not just NATO. Uh, there's this. And, uh, and, and really, it stems from uh, when the president left the nuclear deal. Uh, he did so right in the middle of negotiations with the Europeans. We had been working, our diplomats were working with theirs to try to find some kind of a compromise. And right in the middle of that, uh, the president decided he had had enough, that uh, he didn't think that they were moving quick enough, and so he pulled out. So there, there has been tension. Uh, really, uh, I, I sat in, in a meeting with British diplomats, and I've never seen such tension before. Um, they, they were particularly grumpy about uh, about the, the president's decision. So you have this uh, this tension that has existed. They want to try to keep Iran in the deal. They want Iran to continue to limit its nuclear activities. And, and, and the United States has said, look, this wasn't working in the first place. Not only did we find out that they had all sorts of secrets that they had kept from the IAEA, but on top of that, they've been uh, spending money all around the world to disrupt uh, the Middle East to sponsor terrorism and to engage in a bunch of other behaviors that we don't like. Uh, and so what the Europeans have decided to do to try to sweeten the deal is they've been talking about something called an SPV, Special Purpose Vehicle, which would be a way of maintaining trade outside of the normal channels that would impact the United States so they could find themselves uh, sort of inoculated from sanctions. We have not seen any significant use of this, but it doesn't mean that the Europeans still won't think about using it. So we're trying to deter them and to keep them with us, uh, because a divided West is not one that's ultimately going to get the Iranian regime to bend. And on the Iranian threat now, the Iranians are saying that they are going to uh, back out, even though the Europeans are still in this deal with them because the Trump administration pulled out of this deal. The Iranians are now saying that they will uh, m move away from some of the obligations under the deal, including enriching uranium, right? I mean, there, this is some pretty red line level stuff in terms of the deal, not necessarily red line in terms of a military strike, but this is important stuff that's in the deal. What, what do you make of this? One, do you think the Iranians will do it? And two, if they do it, what are we going to do? 
Look, I think there was always the risk that they were going to start to do this, um, that they were going to start uh, to to violate the deal incrementally, and I would expect that that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to sort of raise the temperature slowly over time, um, and probably not go for for you know large amounts of enriched uranium right away. Um, in other words, so now they've just said, look, we're, you've been out of the deal for a year. We're not getting what we want. We want more, um, you know, uh, financial transactions with the West and, and U.S. sanctions are, are harming that. So we're going to do what, what you know that, that you don't want us to do, which is to enrich. So I think they start off small and move incrementally. The question is, how much will the United States put up with? How much before the Europeans uh, actually join our side? And this is, I think, um, this is going to be the interesting part to watch. Do the Iranians understand who they're playing with here? And do they understand how to keep the Iranians with them while also preventing us from taking more drastic measures? Is this the right move, Jonathan? I mean, I, I see what's going on here with the administration. And I, I've, we've talked about the Iran deal before here on the show. It's clearly a very flawed deal. Obama administration was just desperate for a foreign policy legacy. And, and, you know, that that all still very much stands for me. But I'm hearing people say Bolton, who is a hawkish guy on a whole bunch of whether we're talking Venezuela, Iran, a whole bunch of things and has been for a long time. uh, This is the, the these are the kind of moves that could lead to miscalculation and perhaps even unintended uh, you know, military consequences, that's that's concerning to me. I mean, is is this the right move to people who are just saying in the back of their, you know, or people are thinking in the back of their minds, we, the Trump administration cannot engage in some kind of Mideast war. You know, we need four years here, preferably eight of no wars in the Mideast. Is this Iranian stuff getting close to the line for you or is this what we have to do? You know, it, it's unclear to me, uh, you know, exactly what the Iranians' next move would be. I think uh, we, we actually just had an event today where H.R. McMaster said that there are two ways of uh, of challenging the United States, and, and one is through asymmetrics, and the other way is just to be stupid. Um, in other words, if the Iranians decide they want to challenge the United States, the only way they can do that is, you know, is by way of insurgency or, or through terrorism. There, there is no way for the Iranians to challenge the U.S. in a conventional fashion and win. Um, the U.S. would crush the Iranian military. So, uh, you know, when we think about what does a war mean, uh, you know, I, I think it's hard to define. Can we imagine a situation where the Iranians deploy their militias in Iraq, uh, which is apparently one of the reasons why Pompeo went to uh, Iraq just the other day to confer with Iraqi leadership because of specific incredible concerns? Yeah, we can imagine an, uh, a scenario like that, or perhaps harassment of our Navy, um, you know, in, in the Strait of Hormuz. We can certainly imagine that. Uh, but in terms of a full-on war, it's very hard to, to imagine the Iranians deciding that they want to trifle uh, with a, a powerful military like ours. But could you see a situation where we start having regime change conversations? If, you know, if, if they do miscalculate on the Iranian side, let's say they do unleash the Shia uh, militias in Iraq to go after not just the Iraqis, but our interests in that country too, go after the embassy. There's a whole bunch of you know, war gaming we could do, theorizing, but based on, on reality. And all of a sudden, the U.S. starts blowing up IRGC headquarters. There's airstrikes. Is this a we-break-it-we-buy-it situation? I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to gauge your concerns about over-involvement in Iran. 
Sure. And look, I think all those things are valid, especially after what this country has gone through uh, over the last 20 years and, and the challenges that we've had in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and to a far lesser extent, Syria. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I don't want to discount those. But, what you know, so far, we're not hearing anything from this administration about an invasion or about regime change. What we're talking about, at least what we're hearing, is, uh, you know, severe maximum uh, financial pressure uh, trying to get the administration to uh, or or rather to get to, to get the Iranians according to administration demands uh, to change core behaviors right that uh, Pompeo laid out a, a a number of things that he's just expecting the Iranians to do but he summed it up in one very easy sentence he said I just want the Iranians to be like a normal country right so that means you know stopping terrorism and and missile uh, provocations and uh, propping up dictators and 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 murderers it's that kind of thing that we're trying to get from them and, and so far, everything that we've done is uh, is financial pressure. Now, we have just actually ordered a carrier group um, into the Persian Gulf. Uh, but as Ambassador uh, John Huntsman said, that this is uh, uh, 100,000 tons of diplomacy, that ultimately we're backing up what we're asking for from the Iranians with uh, the threat of military force, but we don't necessarily see anything where the U.S. is geared toward battle. And and my hope is that it stays that way, that we're going to be able to avoid conflict and to get the Iranians to back down on the on the uranium enrichment, but also a lot of the other things that have caused us concern for quite some time. Yeah, having spent some time in Iraq and Afghanistan, I just, I just don't want anyone listening to this to end up, you know, walking the streets of Tehran, trying to make sure that a bunch of militias aren't shooting at each other again. I, you know, it's just, I, I think we got to make sure we all learn the lessons of, of what we've seen, as, as you mentioned, for the last 20 or so years of what is possible and what is uh, what is a good idea. But uh, always good to talk to you, Mr. Jonathan Shanzer from the Foundation of Defense and Democracies. Thanks for uh, being on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, team. Give you a national security deep dive there. Very interesting stuff going on with Iran, though. So I think it was important that we cover all of that. You're going to hear a lot of whining from the press about how Trump is crazy when it comes to Iran. Not true. And that's why I like to bring on people who really know what's up, know what time it is when it comes to foreign policy, like Mr. Shanzer. We'll be right back. I worry that we're in the same position as the nuclear industry was in the early 50s. We have an amazing new technology with real potential, but we are not being honest about the risks and our incapacity to store a wasteful and harmful byproduct. The pattern that I've seen in my industry is one of deceit. We are not honest about what we collect. Problem number one, it seems to me, is the user agreement. Why don't we just require social media companies to write user agreements in plain English? Would that help with the problem? I think that that user agreement would just say, we're taking all your data, yes or no. (laughs) That's... That's a lot of honesty from the founder of Pinboard, an internet company that uh, he's, he's testifying. The guy's name is Masiej Jeglowski. I don't know how to say that. That's as close as I can get. He was at a Senate banking committee hearing. And, you know, sure enough, people are starting to wake up to what we've been talking about here on the show for a long time. And that is that the entire uh, internet system of of social media and all these massive platforms this is a surveillance system folks they are they are taking all of your data and doing things with it and you don't know what it is and the you are the product as in your information your personal habits your likes your wants your needs 
and you're giving it to a third party. Now, it's okay if you're okay with that, but it should at least be open and honest. The fact that Google's motto until pretty recently was don't be evil, I think Google doth protest too much. Right? I think Google knew they had a problem. But speaking of technology and evil, as some of you know, I think that robocalls are the most annoying thing happening in the world of technology right now. I absolutely hate them. Hi, it's Susie. Do you know that you've qualified for a new tour of the blah, blah, You know, no, Susie. No, I do not qualify. This is not true. This is a lie. You've won a cruise. I have not won a cruise, Susie. Stop it. Why are you such a doubter? Because I know you're lying, Susie. Or whatever your name is that's calling me. Um, there's now a new... This is a safety tip for all of you out there. The Federal Communication Commission has been putting out warnings about this for robocallers who do what's called a Wangiri scam. I never heard this before. A Wangiri scam is Japanese for one ring and cut. What they do is call you, particularly from a number in Sierra Leone or Mauritania. You can see the country codes for them, 222 or 232. And it's at an odd hour of the night. They call once and hang up. And then you think, wow, someone's calling me at this hour of the night and they hung up like I missed their call. They must need to talk to me. You call them back and, oh, that's right. It's calling into a, uh, a toll number where you will get billed. You will get billed as if you're calling a 900 number. That's the scam. So not only are robocallers annoying and trying to sell products, now there's straight up thieves. And people are, look, I would fall for this if I didn't know about it. People fall for this one all the time. Calling you from a number you don't know, it rings once, hangs up. You figure this must be important. They're calling me at an odd hour of the night. And you call, and then they just try to keep you on the phone however they can, as long as they can, and bill you for it. Robocallers, friends, this is a this is a scourge. There should be a bipartisan effort to eradicate robocalls and to severely punish. And I mean, like, I want to get I want to get crazy East German Stasi on these robocallers, track them down, find them, punish them because they need to be stopped. This evening, we are in the presence of a true legend, an extraordinary athlete who has transformed golf and achieved new levels of dominance. Tiger Woods is a global symbol of American excellence, devotion, and drive. Tiger endured knee surgery and four excruciating back surgeries. I know that you remember, too. That's not good, but it ended up good, including a spinal fusion in 2017. He fell from number one in the world rankings to 1,199th. I don't believe that. Even if he had one leg, I don't believe that. Tiger's injuries were so profound that for two years, he could barely swing a club. As Tiger said, there was a point in time I didn't know if I'd ever do this again, if he'd ever play again. But Tiger fought through the terrible pain, and he fought all the way back to the summit of golf. People love a comeback. Trump, I think, in particular, loves a comeback. I think, actually, the... In the art of the deal, there's there's on the front cover that might be something about, you know, the way to make a great comeback, uh, which ties into it's not a secret that Trump had tremendous financial difficulties back in the uh, 80s and the 90s as a real estate investor and casino operator. 
I will say, I don't know how it's possible to lose money running a casino. It's like a, an, an, a license to run a ATM machine, but he, he did lose money doing it. I, I guess there's stuff I don't know about the casino business. Right now, somebody who listens in Nevada is like, Buck, it's very hard. You don't understand. Okay, fine. But President Trump gave the Medal of Freedom to uh, Tiger Woods and none other than Nobel Prize laureate, which really makes you think twice about how important and, and profound the Nobel Prize is. Paul Krugman shared this. Quote, I'm old enough to remember when presidential medals of freedom were given for showing courage and making sacrifices on behalf of the nation and the world. Tiger Woods hits golf balls for money. <laughs> That's from Paul Krugman, New York Times op-ed columnist and overall curmudgeon who's wrong about everything. You know, leftist curmudgeon who really hasn't had a good idea from what I've seen in the last 20 years. Uh, he seems to forget that... The Medal Medal of Freedom went to Arnold Palmer in 2004. George W. Bush gave that one. Jack Nicklaus in 2005. Charlie Seifert in 2014. Obama gave that one. Uh, So, yeah. So you have people here who are getting the, you know, getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom and they're golfers. In fact, there are other people. I think there have been some actors and. You know, here's my thing about this. I don't really care who gets the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I I, kind of think the whole thing is, I don't know, like trophies for adults. Who cares, really? It doesn't really strike me, especially when you're giving it to people of cultural note and people that are, you know, civilians that are doing things that are entertaining, interesting, worthwhile, inspiring, whatever, whatever it may be. But can we at least just have criticism of Trump that's based in some reality? Can we not have people saying that Trump is a bad guy and doing bad things because he does exactly what his predecessors have done? Wouldn't that be nice if we could just have that as a rule? That the Paul Krugmans of the world, if they're going to criticize Trump and act like he unprecedented. Remember, they used to say that all the time. They say it less now because they kept on finding out it. It wasn't unprecedented. Every president before this president has done something very similar. I'll leave you with this. Here's Tiger Woods in a in a grateful. I'm not a golf fan, but I like a comeback story, too. So we can have a little moment of moment of Zen here with Tiger Woods uh, enjoying the experience that he had. I know this was a few days ago, but we didn't talk about it here. Play 19. I just want to say this has been an unbelievable experience and uh, to have. The support that I've had for all these years, some of you for my entire life, and some of you for more than half my life, you've seen the good and the bad, the highs and the lows, and I would not be in this position without all of your help. In 97, yes, I won the Masters, and I ended up hugging my dad and my mom. My dad's no longer here, but my mom's here. I love you, Mom. Thank you. You know, it was a nice moment for the guy. Look, he's he's made mistakes, no question about it. He's but he's paid some he's paid the price monetarily and otherwise. America loves a comeback. Trump loves a comeback. I love a comeback. So I'm glad that Tiger managed it. And now we'll do some roll call. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11.
It's time for Roll Call. Indeed it is. It is time for Roll Call. Um, let's get into it, shall we? Uh, first, oh, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to be part of the action, as you know. And just a reminder, folks, next week uh, I will be spending some time in the People's Republic of China as opposed to the People's Republic of D.C., So we are lining up a rock star group of guest hosts for you um, that I'll be out for the week. And uh, we're going to have, assuming we get everybody slotted in properly and uh, and according to their schedules, we should be having, uh, well, we don't know everybody yet, so I won't say. But I think certainly Raheem Kassam, Harlan Hill, Ben Weingartner, uh, we got a whole bunch of folks. So it's going to be fun. Rachel writes, hey, Buck, you asked for a book recommendation. I have one. I know you like history. I was wondering if you have heard or read the book The Silk Roads by Peter Frankopan. It's a great read. Um, I have not. And that sounds awesome, Rachel. And I just wrote it down because that sounds like a perfect thing to read on the plane to China. You have a China. You have a China drop, Mark. Don't be shy about it, by the way, if you ever want to throw. You've got it there. I know, it's in it's in front of you. Chi- China. China. There we go. Don't ever be during roll call. Don't be shy with those drops. Stetson. Cool name. Hi again, Buck. You made me think of something last night. Even if Congress succeeded somehow in impeaching and removing Trump from office, that wouldn't bar him from running in 2020. The 22nd Amendment doesn't prevent it, nor does anything in Article 2, apparently. Interesting, huh? Well, Stetson, I I suppose that's true but i think it would be very hard for a president who had his own party go along with removing him from office (laughs) to run and win but i I think that that is i I guess you're correct you you could be removed from office and then technically run again Uh, lowell writes buck i listen to your podcast every day you are in my opinion the most honest provider of the news of the day thank you well lowell in my opinion you have by far the most uh, wise and excellent taste in podcasts. I drive 150 to 200 miles a day and live deep in the country of northeastern Michigan. I'm out of the range of conservative radio here, but I also quit listening to broadcast news 10 years ago, got tired of being told what to think. I just want the news one time and not all day long. I'm so much less stressed and happier in life in general. Tell everyone to turn off the broadcast news. Just listen to your podcast. The hardest part of my day is when I'm in a customer's home and they have CNN or MSNBC on. Oh, the horror. I get caught laughing at the stupidity that comes out of their mouths or grumbling under my breath a bit. Shields high. P.S. I love the new webpage layout and the beard. Kudos. Thank you so much, Lowell. Appreciate it, my friend. And I, I agree with you that folks should just stop watching broadcast news and they should listen to the Box Extend show. That is that is the answer to the question that we are posing to ourselves here. Jeff writes, awesome radio book. Really like hearing your background experience applied to current topics. Shields high. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, I didn't go to like journalism school and just, I just want to be a journalist and I just want to report and be like a reporter. No, I I was going to be a government guy and then I was going to be a private sector making money guy and then all of a sudden I became a media guy. So kind of just go where the wind takes me. Christopher writes, uh, I'm not sure if this is how you do roll call well christopher you are finding out now if you're listening that it is i'm on the left coast i know but i'm a podcast listener i'm upset about those god-awful commercials that came out of nowhere i know you need advertising but can you do something about this i would even pay to avoid them shields high well christopher 
you know, maybe at some point we'll go to a, a, a paid subscription podcast model. If enough folks were interested in that, I'd, I'd be happy to do that. I think that would be um, that would be great in a lot of ways and do some extras. But we're, we're we're working on all kinds of plans. I will. We, it is duly noted. And everyone listening to the show has certainly heard that it is noted that the commercials are not what you are liking to hear on the podcast. And maybe we'll do a subscription. I, I was thinking. And if I got enough people interested in this, I would just do a subscription that was specifically for Shields High. And that was like history and, and those kind of deep dives. It wouldn't need that many people that would want to subscribe to make it make it worthwhile from a production standpoint. Um, you know, if we got to, I don't know, a couple thousand folks, I think even that would probably be worthwhile, which is a, a, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of how many people are listening to this. You know, it, it is less than a, less than a, a one. That is less than one percent of who is listening to this show every day. So um, I got to figure that out. Uh, I got to take a look and to see if that's a possibility. I, I like the digital world, endless possibilities, although people have to get used to if you want certain content in the digital realm, you've got to support. It's like artists, my friend. You know, someone had to pay Michelangelo's bills. You know, M Michelangelo needed pasta to eat, too. Uh, did I just compare myself doing history podcast to Michelangelo? I don't know. I leave that to you. David writes, Buck, I'm OSS, been a fan since the beginning. I used to listen to you when I was serving as a U.S. naval attache in Tunisia and still do now that I'm retired and live in Jerusalem. Can you please do a deep dive on the Uyghurs and PRC re-education camps, People's Republic of China, that is? Thanks, David. Well, David, thank you for being OSS. It's uh, an honor. You know, I'm approaching now, we're not quite at a decade of the Buck Sexton show, but we're getting into the, in the realm of we'll have to have a, some some real thought about where we'll do a live event for 10 years of the Buck Sexton show. Uh, I think we're at year eight now, so it's coming up on us pretty quickly. And as for the Uyghurs and re-education camps in the People's Republic of China, I like that idea as a topic. I just think that I probably should wait to do a deep dive on Uyghur oppression until I come back back from china if that's okay i'm gonna i'm gonna not poke that bear or the dragon if you will uh before i i head over there i'm just going as a tourist just going to hang out do some things see some sights you know come out to the coast have a few laughs that is the plan uh, but thank you so much david eric has written me this uh, this military officer was one of the best air force officers ever he was instrumental in planning Operation Bolo in Vietnam that dealt a decisive air-to-air -air combat blow against the MiGs in Vietnam. Fighter pilot, the memoirs of legendary ace Robin Olds. I will also write this one down, Eric. I've never heard of it, but it sounds cool. And if you recommend it, I will check it out. Kevin writes, whoa, Kevin, um... This is uh, this is long, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to get to this right now, but I will read it, I promise. Here we go. Uh, Michael writes, Buck, I'm sorry, my friend. I no longer believe that all these left-wing politicians and bureaucrats will face justice. Unless something big changes, and I don't think that anything is really going to change, Shields High. Michael, I, I agree with you. I don't think that there's going to be a a, a reckoning in terms of consequences for the various deep state actors and people that were working so hard to destroy, undermine Trump's campaign and then destroy Trump's campaign or his presidency. Rather, I don't think that those, those people are going to be held to account in any 
serious way. And, and I, I, I do not mislead you and I do not mislead this audience by saying things that I know ooh, get people riled up and get attention, but I think aren't true. Now, those who are OSS know that I was saying right away after Romney lost the 2012 election that you can forget about any real justice for what happened in Benghazi because the people that are responsible for it are in charge. And that's just the way it went. I, I said this. People got mad at me, said, no, Buck, the hearings and Trey Gowdy. And it, nope. Nope. Hillary got away with it. No real consequences for her. Didn't even factor into her 2016 campaign all that much, which was pretty. But that's because the emails, I think, were Benghazi Hillary became lock her up Hillary because of the emails. But I, I don't think that you'll see. Uh, justice meted out against the individuals responsible. But that doesn't mean that there won't be some measure of justice achieved if we find out the truth and at least the American people know or those in America who have an open mind to the truth will know what really happened and can maybe bring a, bring some electoral consequences to the party that was responsible for it, which, as we know, is the left and the Democrat Party. Um, but no, I, I don't think I think they're all going to skate. I even think somehow Andy McCabe lying under oath doesn't matter. They're going to find a way to just stretch that out. And, and you know, he's he's a, a martyr to the anti-Trump left. So they'll let him they'll let him skate. They really will. Uh, we have Dave writes, got a question. If a professional baseball player says he did not want to go to the White House because of what the president did not due to help Puerto Rico. FEMA can do so much, they're only allowed to bring it back to the original state before the emergency. So my question is, if a person has on a one-time with the president chooses to boycott the sports dinner with the president, that does not make sense. He has the opportunity to talk to Trump and confront him about the situation. Why not take the opportunity? Oh, Dave, because people like to do a lot of virtue signaling and, you know, oh, they won't talk to, they won't talk to this president. Oh, no, not this president. This president's so bad and scary and, uh, yeah, that's that's the basics of it. That's the more or less. Uh, let's see. We have here. Michelle writes horse racing nation has a film of the Kentucky Derby, an angle where it clearly shows war of wills foot got in between maximum security's back feet and caused him to veer to the side. The stewards might not have had access to this angle. This proves it is war of will that should have been disqualified. This is why the jockey of war of will did not lodge a complaint. I personally will never watch another horse race again. We need to all protest this until maximum security's win is restored. According to Bob Baffert, or Baffert, I don't know. He's the best three-year-old in the country. Baffert, thank yeah. you. Producer Mike's actually an American. He knows these things. He's the best three-year-old in the country, and the disqualification was completely wrong. Mike, what do you make of Michelle's missive here? She's spot on, and exactly what I said yesterday. When the mainstream media says that the, they all got it right, that means that they they got it wrong, and she's right. They got it wrong. He should have won. Well, there we go. Now it's between Michelle and producer Mike. Now it's gospel. Now we know they got it wrong. Exactly. That's gonna be it for today's edition of the Buck Sexton Show. Please do a spread word about the podcast. And if you don't catch us live sometime on the radio, always know you can listen on iTunes. We will talk to you tomorrow. Shields high. Thank you.